Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This episode is brought to you by HERS. They offer prescription retinoid online without visiting a doctor's office. If you want to know more about that, go to forhers.com slash a few things. That's F-O-R-H-E-R-S dot com slash a few things. Forhers dot com slash a few things you'll even get ten dollars off there oh my gosh that's so great yes you should totally do that oh and of course restrictions apply see the website for details you know all that stuff that's right. we're not doctors yep Welcome to A Few Things, where we give our greatest discoveries the podcast they deserve. I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. This show is brought to you by Of A Kind. Find out more and sign up for our newsletter at ofakind.com. And while you're there, why not order a copy of our new book, Work Wife? It's chock full of conversations with amazing female partners. And leave us a voicemail uh. if you so please. You can give us a call at 833. I lost the tune. 833 of a kind. 833 of a kind. Yeah, you did okay. it. It's not, it's it's not, not that hard like to find. It's not like a sing-songy. Yeah. It's just... A mnemonic device. Uh-huh. Then it's more a mnemonic device than a jingle. We love your voicemails. We slack them to each other. It's great. Excellent. We're thrilled about it. The other thing you can do, if you so please, is check out a wonderful new thing we have on our website. We have these Wolfham Birch trays. We have always, we have long sold the beautiful trays that Wolfham um, makes. And Since like 2012, probably. She's, she's one of the designers. Annabelle Ngani, we love her. Love, love, We've love. We've been to her studio out in um, Pasadena. It is incredible. She and her husband like make all of these things by hand. Um, but now she has this sort of mix and match situation where she has big trays and then little trays that fit inside them. And they are so cute. And we have a couple of them on the site and you can, you know, mix, mix and match. match. Yeah. Mix as and I said. match. Make a, make a tray look. Get yours for 10% off with the code a few things. Okay, we wanted to quickly, before we get into today's topics, talk about something office-related that's mm-hmm. been, like, plaguing us, mm-hmm. I think is the way to talk, to say it. How to set up a pumping room. Oh, my gosh, it's so hard. First of all, who in a young company, you may have a phone booth, but you probably don't have a pumping room, right? Yeah. Like a small company, unless yeah. you have someone who has had a baby. And I was the first person at our company to have a baby, and it was like, okay, 
People must have done this before. How do we make this happen? The Internet's answers are not as good as I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a little bit surprised. You um, really took this on. This was a, a, a good friend. Well, you know, me. I think we both took this on at various points yeah. and, I, and as did Ruby on our team. And I think it's just it's been challenging to find the right answer because we also wanted this to double function as a as a phone room mm-hmm. so that when it wasn't being a pumping room, it, it had other work to do. Yep. And so that means it needs to be soundproof, with, which is a challenge. The best things that we found are these like sort of out-of-the-box solutions. Um, one is called Room, mm-hmm. which is getroom.com. And it's a little uh, chic little phone booth. And the other is Mamava. Mamava makes pumping stations in airports. You've probably You've seen probably them. You've probably seen them. Yeah. And they, they look like almost like, like something you trail, trail <laughs> with, with your car. Totally. You know what I mean? Yep. They make like an airstream situation. Yes, that yeah. is what they look like. And then they make different versions that you can buy and put in offices or like they I think they sell them often to conferences and stuff like yeah. that. And they're more sort of tent like. Yeah. Um, it is really it, it is really challenging to find sort of temporary walls that make sense for a situation well, and like that this. are cost effective, I think, has been mm-hmm. the problem because these while while. Very effective solutions are also three thousand dollars, and yeah, yeah, that's it. That's like a that's a different like budget sort of line item, um, which is not to say it's not the answer, but um, we've been trying to find our other another way. So if you have any ideas, this is just a call for you to send them to us. Email a few things at ofakind dot com if you have any good solutions to this problem. The thing that we have sort of put together is room dividers with a bunch of let's say accessories for yep. pumping that make it possible. And to be honest, I find it pretty comfortable in there. Yeah. And and the pumps that that most pumps nowadays I think are pretty quiet and I'm also not embarrassed of the sound of a pump. No. It's white noise. We do have Who a white cares? noise machine in there, but I never turn it on. Um so we have a desk and a comfortable chair. We have um a paper towel holder with paper towels on it, which is key because breast milk gets everywhere no matter how wonderful your pump is. We have a trash can, very key for throwing away the paper towels, like the little plastic parts that come off the milk pumping bags, all of that. Uh, I like how you tried to va- had to validate the trash can like anybody was going to question <laughs> because why there's there wasn't a trash one can there. This has been a learning experience and I feel like every time I pump, I have to slack Ruby again right after and be like, "You know what I actually need in there a is a computer charger." Yeah, yeah, a computer charger. Computer and phone charger is key. Having the type of job that I have makes pumping less terrible because I can get work done while I'm yeah. pumping if I have a laptop in there. So having a computer charger has been key. Um, having a pen tied to the desk like a like a bank pen has been very important because I know I will take the pen out if it's not chained to the this desk. This seems like a, also maybe a specific sort of you thing. Well, but if somebody else took it out, I'd be really annoyed. No, totally, <laughs> totally, totally. No, but I just mean like mm-hmm. the like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because you have to write on the milk bags, the date and ideally the amount of milk that you've pumped into them. So having a pump and, excuse me, having a pen in there at all times is very important. Having a bowl with a lid that you can throw the pump parts into is really important, uh, especially because if you're running to a meeting and you don't have time to wash the pump parts right after you have pumped, it's nice to just be able to soak them in a bowl and then put a lid over it so you're not leaving it out in the open and having people just see your dirty pump part soaking in water. And then a drying rack that it, and, and a scrub brush that are specifically for pump parts in a bottle is also key. And then I have been really enjoying these sort of like quick clean solutions that Medela makes. I'm sure other people do, but they have like quick clean wipes and quick clean spray that make it so that when you're on the fly and you just need to get something cleaned really quickly, it's a lot easier. I will say in general, it's not the pumping that bothers me. It's like the setup and the cleaning that is yeah. really feels especially feels time consuming and, and tedious. So those are my recommendations for 
a pumping room recipe. Well, those that was really servicey. But again, I would like to say <laughs> we need a better solution. We need a better. We need solution. a better solution. Yeah. Email us at a few things of a kind com. Okay. We are here with the co-founders of The Dinner Party, which is this amazing organization. We can't wait for them to tell you about it. Carla Fernandez and Lennon Flowers. Hi, you two. Hello. Hi. Can you start by explaining The Dinner Party in your words? Because you're going to do such a better job than I will. Yeah. So The Dinner Party is best known in the world um, as a community of 20 and 30-something, um, mostly. There's no kind of firm line in the sand, who've all experienced a major loss, um, a death loss. Um, and who connect over potluck meals to talk openly about it. Um, and our work is around how do you take something that for so many of us um, is the thing that cuts you off from your peer community as folks who are oftentimes among the first um, in their peer circles to go through this particular experience and actually use it as a vehicle to engage more deeply, to build our most meaningful relationships and friendships um, with people with whom there's nothing you have to hide. How do you turn something um, that has you know been a source of struggle into a source of strength and recognize that out of our pain, um, you know, is a lot of our power. How did how did this idea come about? This is Carla. The idea came about very much from a place of personal um, experience. You know, when we started this work, we were in zero way trying to like build an organization or start a movement. It was really what Lennon and I both felt like we need needed personally in the months or years after we both lost a parent to cancer. Um, I lost my dad to brain cancer um, in on New Year's Day 2010 and had gone to, you know, like tried to be an A-plus student about it and was reading all the books and was going to the grief support groups and yet found that there was this missing piece for me, which was just sitting with other people who were similar to me in, in age and sensibility and talking about it, not in an environment that felt clinical or institutional or like we were being psychoanalyzed as we were sharing, but in a place where we could just really unpack, like what the hell just happened and what is our life going to look like moving forward? Um, so Lennon and I were coworkers. We met working at a magazine and we'd both gotten really good at not talking about it because I don't know if you've experienced this, but I think oftentimes when someone has experienced a loss and they share it with someone who hasn't, there's, it's, it can often be a conversation stopper. Yeah. We talk about this like deer in the headlights look that mm-hmm. people give you. Um, and we were so sick of getting that reaction from people. We both gotten really good at just not bringing it up. And mm-hmm. then I made what I thought at the time was a terrible idea and told Lennon that my dad had recently died on a coffee date. Um, and her reaction, instead of saying like, oh God, I'm sorry for your loss. And then crickets her reaction instead was like, oh, me too. Um, and, and did you know that beforehand? No, I didn't no. know. What was your relationship yeah. like up before this coffee date? So it's so funny because I had moved to LA and I was interviewing for this dream job. And the final phase of the interview, I it was it happened to be Lennon's first day on the job. She'd just gotten hired at this magazine. And they basically had her interview me as like a last step in the process. And we were sitting across from each other and chatting. And um, we, at one point, you know, we were talking about, oh, we just moved to LA. We just moved to LA because we had these musician boyfriends that we were following across the country. And um, she asked me at one point, like, what do you want to be when you grow up, basically? And I told mm-hmm. her that I thought I might want to start an organization and, and build a social enterprise, but I wasn't sure quite what. And 
her reaction was like, me too. Cool. Um, and we decided at the end of the interview that like, even if I didn't get the job that we should just hang out and be friends and we exchanged numbers. And I remember walking out of the interview being like that. Maybe who knows if I, if I got the job, but I definitely like have a new friend and felt really, really good about that. I have goosebumps um, and Eric is then- definitely about to cry. <laughs> You guys, it's really really touching and and special. And yeah, yeah. it was really, yeah, we, we, there was, you know, people, people talk about romantic love at first sight, you know, and that being like, there's this moment. And, and I think that in many ways, like our first conversation was one where we were like, Hey, this, there was, there was a different kind of thunder and lightning that happened in that moment. And maybe it makes more sense, you know, 10 years later looking back, but, um, yeah, there was definitely a, like a little bit of a falling in love that happened, even though we had no idea that both of us had recently lost a parent and we had no idea that, you know, we would then turn that loss into a community of people now across the country and more and more around the world. When you found when you had this coffee date and you had the realization that you both had had this shared experience and were both sort of struggling to find the the ways the the best ways to navigate your grief or the best ways to form community around it. How did that change your relationship or what did you do from there? Yeah. Um, this is one in, you know, I think in a lot of ways, and it's so funny because we tell this story all the time and yet I still like have this very visceral memory of that like moment of relief and this feeling that, you know, for the first time my mom died about, I guess three and a half years before at that point while I was in college. Um, and she had been sick for a long time before that. Um, you know, and like for me, avoidance had been a survival strategy, um, you know, and a pretty effective one. Um, and so I think I, I remember in that moment, it was the first time when I was like, Oh, not only this like relief and affirmation of like you too, huh? But like, Oh, I actually really want to open up a conversation, you know, like, wait a minute, we're back in our office, but we're not done, you know, but this also isn't an appropriate kind of, um, space for the office water cooler, you know? Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that's kind of a misnomer out there. Um, is that like actually when you open up a con- when you begin kind of a, rela- a conversation about this, it actually deepens the relationship, you know. And I had only ever known my loss experiences, um, you know, to feel like something that, um, you know, was a barrier to deepening uh, relationships, you know, and something that like, oh, I'm so sorry that my complicated life has made you feel uncomfortable. I'll never do that again. Um, and so it was, you know, even before we sat down for a dinner around it, it was this feeling of like deepening and uh, and greater connectivity with Carla. Um, And that was the first time that that had ever happened in my life. Um, You and I talk kind of a lot about wanting to have fancy skin. Mm. Like... (laughs) Well, I hadn't, I never got, a, I never got a facial until yeah. pretty late in life. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. when we did it, I was like, oh, this is how you make the no makeup look a thing. You spend a ton of money on skincare and then wear less makeup, yes. if any, if any right. at all. And the first time I got a facial, I walked out being like, that's it. I'm just going to take aggressive care of my skin, pour so much money into facials, and then I'll never have to wear makeup again. That lasted about two seconds. That feels about right. But something that I feel like you have been committed to aside from pregnancy, obviously, mm-hmm. is prescription retinoid. Yes. I don't use it right now because pregnancy and then breastfeeding, but that ish works. That ish works. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in trying that out, HERS is a new women's wellness brand delivering affordable retinoid, one of dermatologists' go-to solutions for aging skin. It's not like we want to look 18, but looking like we get a full night's sleep and drink eight glasses of water every day would be nice. That would be lovely. Right? Yeah. And 
you don't have to go to a dermatologist's office to make this happen. They have licensed dermatologists online that can write the prescription on for the you. internet, which because, you know, no one has to be, you can take the cameras on our phones are good enough at mm-hmm. this point in time that people can see your skin very good from photos. I just feel like if I can order contact lenses online, I should be able to get my retinoid online. Same, 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 same. When you reach out to these doctors on the internet, they will evaluate you and if appropriate, can prescribe you a treatment that can be delivered straight to your door. Their prescription high strength retinoid face cream is here to help smooth fine lines uneven skin texture, and make your complexion look all bright and glowy, which is what we are all going for. I am. Yep. It's not about changing your face. It's about getting products that make you feel your best. So order now. Listeners can get their first month of anti-aging formula from HERS for $10 off right now while supplies last and, of course, subject to doctor approval. See the website for full details. Go to forhers.com slash a few things. That's F-O-R-H-E-R-S dot com slash a few things for hers dot com slash a few things restrictions apply see website for full details so how did the idea for centering this around a dinner party come about so this is carla you know, after that conversation with Lennon on our coffee date and a few other connections that I made with mo- all women at the time um, in their 20s, I kept making these connections and, and had this feeling of like, I would love to just be able to like talk about this and not be interrupted by or the coworker who's walking up to us or, you know, it didn't feel right to have this conversation at a party on a couch, which is where I met one of the other original dinner partiers. Um, and food has always been a big part of my life, a deep love, a very deep love. Um, and it's been a big part of my family's life. My, my great grandparents started a, a luncheonette in Brooklyn and my dad was in the wine business and, you know, sitting down to family meals while they didn't happen every night when they did happen were really holy places. Um, and it was really one of the things that I remember missing the most in the months after my dad died was not having his company at the dinner table and not having the kinds of conversations that we would always have when he was there, which were kind of these big, beautiful philosophical discussions about life. And, um, and so in the wake of his death, and as I started to kind of collect this weird group of friends who'd all experienced the loss, the thing that felt the most natural to me to do was like, let's just like make dinner and talk. Um, and so we invited a handful of people over. Um, I was living in Echo Park at the time in LA and, Getting ready for the evening was like, okay, you know, zero people could show up. Um, it'd be very, very easy to decide to watch Netflix tonight instead of coming over and talking about this one thing we've all gotten really good at hiding. Um, and yeah, and it took a, it took a minute. Um, you know, it was a potluck. Everybody, we had dinner on the deck and, um, people were kind of small talking and everybody knew why they were there, but it was a little bit unclear how the conversation was going to get started. And then I, I toasted to my dad um, with um, a wine that he had been a part of creating and welcomed them all and invited everybody to share sort of like why they had said yes. And who the question that we, the way we frame it now is who brought them to the table mm. And then this amazing thing happened where we all could relax and talk about the parts of this experience that for many of us, we'd never heard ourselves say out loud before. And some of it was the sad parts, you know, talking about the diagnosis or the death or the accident, but what was, and and that's important, 
but what was like very cool and surprising was a lot of it was also about like, what are you guys doing now with X family dynamic that's shifting or how do you go on a first date and like answer the question, where do your parents live without mm-hmm. freaking out? Or, um, you know, what about all of your childhood friends who just like really don't get what you're going through right now? Like, how are you maintaining those relationships if you are? And it was all about all this like very nuanced um, these nuanced questions that, that all of us had been holding in private. And for the first time we could all like nod our heads vigorously across the table because we'd been feeling crazy thinking that we were the only people that were asking those kinds of questions. Um, so, and at the end of that night, it was like a great, it felt like this great first date. Um, and at the end of the night, we all kind of looked around the table and we're like, maybe we'll do this again. Um, and we did. And that, initial table met about monthly for probably like two years. Um, and it was around after we started doing it for those first few months and we all kind of felt a little bit of pride and I was like, Oh, we have this weird secret supper club where we get together and talk about grief. Um, it kind of gave us a way to talk about our loss, um, in a way that wasn't primarily about the death, but about this like cool new community that we were a part of and this like fun weird thing we were doing on Thursday nights. And that ability to introduce the conversation meant that people started to ask about it um, and ask if they could join and ask if they could start one. And um, shortly after Lennon and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, Oh, we're actually not the only six women who are craving something like this it's not that people don't want to talk about it. They very much do. There just hasn't been the kind of invitation to go there in a way that feels good to people that actually makes them want to like raise their hand and show up. So at what point did the two of you sort of look at each other and decide we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to make this something more than just (laughs) this one dinner party. Um, There wasn't a single point, you know, and I actually think it was, you know, some really hard conversations, you know, around what is this that's different from, you know, just a personal project, um, you know, on the side. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, because of the spaces that Carl and I had come from professionally and, you know, the world that we were in, you know, we're asking questions in our like daily lives about how do you make ideas move, you know, Um, and what does it, you know, like, if what we're doing around these tables is not rocket science, you know, um, why is it, um, that, you know, it took us so long. Why is it that we hadn't found any other spaces that felt like this, right? Um, and as we became more comfortable with our stories, you know, like you realize, like, oh, lo and behold, you actually do know other people who are carrying, um, you know, their own loss experiences. It's just that all of us are really, really good at never talking about it. Um, but I think it was a really big gap between all of that and the kind of question of, um, you know, as young 20-somethings, do we want to dedicate our lives to grief, you know? Um, and I was the first um, to kind of jump, you know, and like tried, you know, pulling Carla down with me. Um, and, you know, <laughs> um, and she was like, no, she laughed I'm now. not actually. <laughs> you know, I think, I think it's important because I don't think we always talk about like the hard conversations, you know, and the yeah. things that, you know, especially between friends, you know, like the reason that we were able to get to now is that there was like this underlying trust and, you know, depth of relationship between the two of us that allowed it, that sustained us through some really hard moments, you know, and moments when we weren't necessarily on the same page. But I think also in a lot of ways, you know, it was the two of us were able to kind of speed each other up and slow each other down um, in a way that, you know, meant that we were really 
thoughtful and kind of careful as this grew. Um, so I, you know, uh, I guess it was probably the end of 2013. Um, I quit my job um, and took, moved my uh, mom's life insurance money um, from my savings account into my checking account. Um, you know, and kind of went full on and, um, you know, and in a lot of ways it was like those early days, we had no idea what we were doing. You know, we thought the hard thing would be actually getting people to show up. It would be, you know, um, oh my God, we're about to be millennials on the internet talking about grief and loss. Um, and we will lose every friend that we have ever had, um, you know, in this journey. And, and it turned out like, actually the problem wasn't, will people show up? It was what do you do when they, when they like completely flood your inbox? You know, how do we actually, um, you know, replicate, um, you know, the experience that we had around that first table, you know, um, in a way that doesn't feel formulaic or institutional, um, you know, and so it was just, it was a lot of small steps um, and kind of the two steps forward, one step back, well, like, oops, that didn't work. Um, you know, that was really, I think, critical um, to, you know, eventually getting to where we are today, you know, as a community in 90 cities and 270 tables. Um, and what's interesting, you know, is that, like, really what a dinner party is doesn't look that different um, from what that early experience was, um, you know, around Carla's table that first night in Echo Park, you know, what brings you here and where are you now? You know, and that this is about, you know, not just one time events where you can talk about something that you've never talked about, which is important, um, but actually, like, how do you build relationships over time with the same group of people, you know, who know your full story? And so you can actually, like, use this to, you know, check in and recognize that, like, you know, loss doesn't go away, but it does change and a relationship to it does change. Um, and so you're not just telling the same, you know, um, static stories you've told before. What if you... And, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. There was one, it's, it's so funny because we're, um, I, I'm excited about the book that you guys wrote and, um, for lots of reasons. And it's interesting because rarely are we asked about the way that we work with one another. Yeah. You know, people like to know like, Oh, how did this start? And yeah. I'm like, it took off and where are you now? And kind of jump over the like many years that has been intense nights, weekends, getting paid nothing, you know, trying to convince people that like, no, this needs to exist in the world. And, um, I, you know, I remember Lennon and I, Lennon, I don't know if you remember this night, but we, um, after that first dinner later that year, we both happened to break up with the musician boyfriends who we moved to LA to be with naturally. Naturally. Um, and we ended up moving in together. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so we moved into this great group house that is where we're both sitting right now as we're talking to you. I don't live here anymore, but I did once. It was great. Um, and I remember we were sitting on the porch one night kind of talking about, like, whoa, where the, could this go? Envisioning, like, basically where we are now and where we hope to be in 10 years and over a bottle of wine. And, and while we were aligned in that, the ways that we felt comfortable getting there were really different there was a lot of like tension and heartache in, you know, I feel like I'm more of the, um, we've done all kinds of Enneagram and personality testing and these kinds of things, but there, and now we kind of understand like, Oh, that thing that you do that annoys me is your strength. I get it. <laughs> um, it's a good thing. Um, but you know, I think Lennon is this amazing, just going to, you know, fluff you up a little bit. Lennon's this like amazing, courageous, brave, like wicked driven person. And was like, I'm like, screw it. I'm quitting my job and we're doing this. 
Um, and I was like, I'm all in too, but my way of being all in is like keeping my day job and doing this nights and weekends until it feels a little bit more stable, you know? And, and I think that, um, we were both right for ourselves and, and it also meant that there was like a few years where it was, you know, it was a struggle and Lennon was definitely, while I maybe hosted the initial dinner, Lennon was totally the one that was like, this is an idea that needs to scale. And the only way that we can do it is like being balls to the walls about it in a very feminist way. Um, and, and yeah, there's, I think there's like so much, there's so much nuance in, um, how we've gotten to where we've gotten to. And, um, we're now really just starting to talk to other co-founders about how do you, um, how do you make partnerships like this really work for the long term? And, um, it's such a big, important piece that rarely gets talked about. Well, one of the mm-hmm. things that's interesting with you guys and that I'm always curious to know is, um, how, you know, you sensed that your relationship could withstand, starting an organization or a company together. And with you guys, it's interesting because you had this extended time of just being on this really intimate level with each other and and showing how you took care of one another and how you looked out for one another. You know, in a lot of ways, you know, going into this, we didn't know how hard this would be, you know, on our friendship. We didn't, there wasn't a lot of, you know, like I would love to say that there was a lot of intentionality, um, you know, like in practice and getting ready all of this has been kind of a series of accidents and, you know, like makes sense through the rearview mirror, you know? And I think these moments in which, you know, like you start something because you can't not, you know, because it's kind of invaded your, your brain, you know, and it's the thing that you're spending all your time thinking about. And at that point, that's the moment to begin. Um, I think, you know, what was helpful was the fact that, you know, most of our conversations about the dinner, uh, what would become the dinner party before it, you know, even had a brand, you know, and a title, um, you know, we're like in our drives into the office together while we were, you know, living in the same house and working in the same place and conversations about, um, you know, Carla's dad and my mom and all of the kind of cast of characters um, that remained, you know, after they died. Um, and it was these kind of moments that had given us a vocabulary with which to talk about loss, you know, but also one that really created a just profound foundation, you know, for a friendship that would like be able to survive the hard stuff of creating, you know, a startup nonprofit with no money um, and, you know, no plan. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, and I think there have been moments, you know, since then um, where, you know, like not unlike loss itself, you know, you realize like, oh shit, I just survived that. Right. I did. I have, you know, like I have more power and more strength than I knew, you know, and you don't want to wish that kind of test on anybody, you know, um, but it doesn't make it any less true. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, some of the hard conversations, you know, between the two of us, you know, like on the other side, it didn't fracture a friendship. It made it stronger because we realized like, oh, you know, you mean we're capable of disagreeing on this um, and still like loving each other really hard the next day, you know, um, and still like staying in it um, because we, you know, had that foundation where, um, you know, of both knowing, you know, like each other so intimately um, and those stories and the kind of convictions and over time, you know, like as Carla said, the kind of personality quirks, you know, mm-hmm. that made us really good complementary partners, but definitely not the same human, you know, Um And I think, you know, over, 
I think one of the things that has been interesting as, you know, our job descriptions have solidified as this has grown from not a project of one or two, um, but to a staff and to a team um, and to people, you know, who have run circles around the earth for this, you know, um, who had nothing to do with that kind of origin story. Um, you know, I think we have um, had the chance to get a lot more intentional about our relationship. We did a, um, you know, we've done moments of like renewing our vows and calling in, you know, our our personal high priestesses, um, you know, and mentors and boss ladies, um, you know, to say like, how do we do this and how do we do this well? Because if, you know, because the ultimate success of this, um, you know, as an organization and our ability to like realize a vision depends on, you know, our own staying power. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, you know, you had that first dinner when you were in your 20s and you are mostly servicing people who have had who are coping with grief and loss in their 20s and 30s. What do you think about people in those life stages or at that or, or those ages? Um, what do you think they're especially lacking in terms of dealing with grief and loss that you're you're providing? You know, at the time, it was just felt instinctual because it was what we were hungry for. But yeah. now looking back, we're like, huh, there is actually a really big gap in the marketplace or a gap in the resources available. You know, there's, we talk about, um, you know, there's really incredible people working in the grief space, particularly with children, you Mm -hmm. know, creating um, camps where kids can go and be kids and work through um, the experience of loss. There's many um, more traditional grief support centers that oftentimes are filled with, with people who are a little bit older, like, 50s, 60s who have experienced a loss and the sort of more natural time frame. And it means that there's sort of this gap of 20 for 20 and 30 somethings who probably don't live in the town where they grew up, probably moved to a city or somewhere else for work. They probably don't yet have a family of their own. So they're in that kind of like in between where they don't live at home with their family, but they haven't created their own social structure. There's sort of this like new um, window in life where people can find themselves to be uh, particularly unmoored. Um, you know, we've done some work with the How We Gather group that came out of Harvard Divinity School, looking at like what is going on with this unchurched generation. Mm. Um, more and more people are spiritual, not religious, which means that they don't go to church, which for lots of different reasons, one effect of that is that they don't have the same sort of um, spiritual, social community that that church has provided over time. So people identify more as like you know, an employee of X company than they do with other identifiers. Um, and oftentimes those are the kinds of places where it can be even harder to talk about what's really going on. So we're finding that people are showing up because they're really hungry for a space where they can bring their full story. One of the, the biggest kind of learnings in this, you know, for us has been that every single story and experience is different, right? My story is different from my brother's story, despite the fact that the characters in the play are the same, you know, because who we were, who we are, um, what our relationships look like are different, you know? So what this isn't, you know, so I think the experience of, you know, like anger and ache and, um, and also the ways in which this, you know, can profoundly changes your life before versus your life after, those those elements can be true, whoever you are and whatever age you are, um, at a moment of profound loss. Um, I think what makes this generation different is that we are living in, you know, a period of kind of endemic loneliness, right? Where, um, you know, there was a recent study this spring 
that millennials and Generation Z um, are the most are lonelier than um, people of any other age demographic, including folks um, 72 and older. You know, when you walk into a room as you know a 25 year old and you're the only person under 45 present. Um, chances are you'll never walk back, um, you know, to that support group, even if the opportunity to share a story, um, you know, and the kind of grief experiences do, you know, mimic one another. I think, you know, that point makes a lot of sense to me as speaking as someone who has been the shitty friend in my 20s to someone who lost a parent. I think I just had no context for how to discuss it because I wasn't at a stage in my life where I knew anyone who had lost a parent before. And now I can be a much better friend because I've seen people go through this because I'm, you know, the passage of time means I I know more people who have had this experience. And so I've spent more time thinking and reading about it. Um, But I think it can be hard if you're in your teens or your 20s and your 30s and you're the first friend to have lost someone. Um, And I think having that peer group is, you know, is totally critical. Um, and it's not actually that people don't want to talk about this. It's that they're all afraid of saying the wrong thing, Yeah, right? Because all of us have had some moment of like foot in mouth syndrome, you know, or like, oh God, I, you know, like that deer in headlights look of paralysis. Like I have no idea what to say to you to make this better. So I'm going to change the subject, you know? And I think, um, you know, really there isn't, you know, a single thing that fixes this because loss and grief, you know, um, aren't problems to be fixed. There's something to be held. And one of the outcomes of dinner that we've heard about, you know, we have a, we made a resource called the being there guide. It's available for free on our website and it's, it's crowdsourced from our community of the things that people have been told or that the actions that friends have taken and like what is and is recommended and like what's the stuff to maybe avoid at all costs. Um, so we've, we've done a lot of work around how do we like distill down the best practices and share that and we also talk a lot about how, like, it, it's not a one-way conversation. That for those of us who have experienced loss, um, we also sometimes don't know what to say. And what ends up happening at the dinners is practicing saying your story out loud and taking that kind of ability and fluency away from the table as well. You know, um, we hear that people who come to dinners feel more comfortable talking about their loss or can tell the story without breaking down in tears or whatever it might be. Um, you know, there's one of our advisors, this guy, Parker Palmer talks a lot about the conspiracy of silence. You know, like we all know that this elephant is in the room and we just need somebody to introduce it. And I think the introduction can happen from both a friend and it can also happen from, from a person who's lived the experience. And our work is in many ways trying to, trying to be supportive of people on both sides of that line. Um, thank, thank you so much for being here, both of you. This was this was amazing and so informative. And um, just thinking about the topic of grief more and thinking about your relationship um, and all that you've been through and done together is really interesting and inspiring. Um, and we're super grateful. Thanks so yeah. much for having us. Um, that's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify. Follow us at Of A Kind on Instagram and Twitter and like our Facebook page. If you have ideas or requests for the show, email us at a few things at ofakind.com. And to advertise in our podcast, that's advertising at ofakind.com. Our intro music, Butterfield East, is written and performed by the Soulful Saints, and we are recording at Alex's house. This episode is brought to you by HERS. They offer prescription retinoid online without visiting a doctor's office. If you want to know more about that, go to forhers.com slash a few things. That's F-O-R-H-E-R-S dot com slash a few things. Forhers.com 
slash a few things. You'll even get $10 off there. Oh my gosh, that's so great. Yes, you should totally do that. Oh, and of course, restrictions apply. See the website for details. You know all that stuff. That's right. We're not doctors. Yep. Yep. 